Hi everyone and welcome to another Giant Sisters podcast with Joe Brothers. Today I'm talking with Rebecca Stewart who is the co-founder and general manager of Pomegranate Kitchen, a catering social enterprise which trains and employs cooks from a refugee background. Rebecca was born in Wellington and is happy to have returned after working for not-for-profits in New Zealand, Australia, India and Fiji in areas as varied as sexual health and indigenous youth justice. Welcome, Rebecca. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, on the Giant Sisters podcast, we're celebrating women and women's stories. Now, generally, I start off with the the power of intention. How did you design your life and career path, or did it just evolve? (laughs) I wonder if you have many many guests on who say they've designed it, because um, so many people I've talked to say that it's... um, it only makes sense in retrospect, <laughs> those of us with more um, interest in career paths. Yeah, so, you're, yeah right. I mean, you're, I, you're right. Sorry, sorry just to interrupt. You are right. Most people say, I thought this plan and then this has ended up happening. And then they yeah. talk us through. So that would be really keen to hear your story. Sure. Well, um, I grew up in Wellington. Um, ended up studying, oh, I studied psychology, which was really you know, um, went to university first year, started off in law and psychology, kind of, you know, was m- more interested in psychology just because I really enjoy um, thinking about people and how the mind works, mm. but none of that was particularly intentional either. I think I was um, quite like a lot of 18-year-olds, so I didn't really um, know what I wanted or who I was and also wasn't really aware of the jobs out there. Mm. Um so I came to the end of that and knew that wasn't right. Ended up going travelling for a bit and I actually uh, worked on a super yacht wow. that uh, belonged to, yeah, the co-founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen, over in the Mediterranean. So right. that was, um, <laughs> that was, would have been hard to plan, that one. Yeah. Uh, and, then, uh, and I think on there, I mean, it, you know, there's just so much money floating around. So I think it sort of accelerated my midlife crisis a little bit. Right. <laughs> a lot of people come to the, you know, the end, middle of their careers and say they want to work in a um, values-driven space or give back. But for me, that happened quite early where I, um, yeah, I knew after that that I really wanted to be working, um, you know, making change in the world. Uh, so I ended up in Melbourne studying yeah. public health. Right. Uh, and... And worked for a number of not-for-profits, as you said. Uh, I specialised in program evaluation, so uh, seeing whether organisations are having the impacts that they are intending to have. Yeah. Um, and what that meant was that I, yeah, I got to work in a number of different spaces. That's a great thing about evaluation. Uh, your job is to come in uh, to a program and learn about it quite quickly, and then um, help help it kind of be able to tell the story of what it does so Mm. yeah so that was fascinating work really cool uh and then I was uh, I applied for Australian aid sorry tell me if this is just telling you every single day let's (laughs) keep going (laughs) I then I applied for Australian aid um placement uh in Fiji in sexual health Mm. uh but and that was supposed to be for a year but when I was there after three months um I was actually diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 30. Oh, no. Um, yeah, which was just like a real spanner in the works, you know. Like, I, I really had this idea that 
that was going to set me on this certain career trajectory into international development. And I sort of, yeah, I had this. I'd just done one of those exercises where you imagine yourself in five years, and I had this whole plan. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it just really was not that. So I came back to Wellington and, yeah, just had to spend a year um, being sick and getting better, which was, um, I guess, a really good learning opportunity to be able to rely on others a bit more, um, I guess, distance myself from work. Yes. So I'd always been someone that really, my identity was really wrapped up in what I do. Mm. So, yeah, so that was a that was a really big challenge. Um, she's just lying in bed and you're not doing anything. It's like, who am I? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so after that I worked up in New Zealand and Red Cross here in Wellington and when I was there I saw that there were a number of people who, from refugee background, who really wanted to work, but um, you know couldn't get a foot in the door either because of language barriers or lack of local experience. And mm. so uh, I was living with my stepmom at the time because you know I was still sort of in recovery, and yeah. uh, we put our heads together and and kind of came up with this business idea, uh, which is kind of funny because I mean I yeah I'd always worked for not for profits. I never wanted to be the boss because they yeah. always seemed really uh, underpaid and overworked which turned <laughs> out to be true yeah. <laughs> um, and I never you know was in the business world or anything like that um, so it's been such an amazing learning curve over the last 18 months uh, yeah and so yeah so my uh, stepmom who's also my business partner is a real foodie mm-hmm. she was you know really interested in what kind of uh, yeah, I guess the food stories that people were bringing over with them, all of this, these great kind of like generations of knowledge that people were bringing into into Wellington. Mm. Um, yeah, and so that was really the focus from from both of our ends, is to you know to provide opportunities and also um, introduce Wellington to some new flavors. Right. So yeah. So that's how Pomegranate Kitchen was born. Wow. So it sounds like the inspiration for the Pomegranate Kitchen was. Um, people coming with the, I just heard you say they had food stories. That's really interesting. Had you seen anything like this done anywhere around the world before? Yeah, so we sort of drew our inspiration from uh, an organisation in New York called Eat Off Beach. Um, they, yeah, I mean, they, they do more sort of individual lunch delivery, which is what we started off doing, but mm-hmm. soon realised it wasn't quite right for Wellington and it mm-hmm. wasn't you know, profitable for us. So it was much more about catering here. Yes. Uh, yeah, and since we've started, um, you know, I've found some other, especially um, close to home in, in Melbourne, some other organisations like Tamil Feasts um, yeah. and the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre over there. I actually went and visited the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre when I was um, their catering company when I was over in Melbourne right. on a personal trip uh, last year. Mm-hmm. It was so great because it really made me see that um, well, A, that the things that I just made up, like run sheets for the kitchen, were actually quite close to what the professionals were doing. Right. Um, but, but B, that, you know, that it is like a working model and it's a good idea mm. and just got some little tips from them and so forth. Um, they're operating at a much larger scale than us, which was also quite inspiring. Mm. Much bigger groups. Um, there's obviously a scale over there that, you know, we can't match in Wellington. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's what's happening. But uh, we're the first to do this in New Zealand. Great. There's something, yeah, there's an organisation in Auckland called Wise Collective who, as far as I know, um, help uh, women from mm-hmm. refugee background um, uh, 
get the food control plans that, you know, the council mm. required food control plans in their own kitchen and then link them with events if they want to. So they're sort of a more of a linking kind of thing. Right. Uh, but there's no one having, you know, like a central kitchen and catering business uh, with, working with refugee victim cooks yeah. in New Zealand yet, apart from us. So my next question was going to be... Um, Tell us about some of the interesting things you've experienced in your um, career to date because it sounds like you've gone from super yachts to not-for-profits. That's a huge, that's like polar opposite, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, do you have some, do some sort of stories come to mind that sit with you a lot and sort of that you think about? Uh, in my career? Yeah. When I was, you know, yeah, you're right, it was a massive shift. And, I mean, when I was applying for not-for-profits afterwards, you know, people, the interviewers would look at my CV and be like, excuse me? <laughs> it was quite strange. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we had uh, the nephew of a dictator of um, an African nation that came on the super yacht who just had, like, thousands of pieces of luggage. And he mm. had two women who were American who he brought on um, and he'd have dinner with one of them one night on one deck and the other one wouldn't be allowed to sit with them and then he'd swap them the next night. Just, like, surreal. Oh, wow. But, yeah, the things that people get up to <laughs> have that much money. I mean, we were lucky. That was uh, someone that was chartering the boat. We were actually lucky with our um, owner that he was just lived quite a normal life. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of the work that I've done for not-for-profits, um, I was lucky enough to visit the Northern Territory, um, Alice Springs, mm. in Australia to work in a, a men's behaviour change domestic violence program for yes. Aboriginal men. Uh, so that was only a brief visit, but that was that was pretty in, um, incredible. Mm. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, working in Fiji, oh, I also worked, um, while I was living in Australia, I did two three-month stints in India as well. Yeah. One on a... a, a university course that was a god it's just got out of my head um a a health it was basically a health program in right. rural maharashtra and then the second time i was over i went over by myself and um stayed in delhi mm-hmm. uh, working on an anti-sex trafficking organization wow. um yeah and through there i actually went to a place in rural India, rural Bihar, the state of Bihar, um, to work with, this was just like a field trip to do some research, and yes. we ended up being like sort of held hostage by these <clears throat> um, middle-aged uh, sex workers oh. who didn't want to do the surveys anymore, so that, you know, they said that they, that we had to go and get, well, someone had to go and get the surveys and give them back, and we weren't allowed to leave, we're in this house, we weren't allowed to leave the house oh, wow. until... We got the sur- they got the surveys back, which is totally within their rights. Like they don't need to do that um, research if they aren't comfortable with it, right. um, and that's one of the main things about you know doing this kind of research. But yeah, I think it was only afterwards that my my supervisor, who is Indian, said, you know, you could have like called your consulate about that. Right. <laughs> like it was really yeah. So it was. I think it was a lot more gnarly than I kind of realised at the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yep. Yeah, Wow, okay. 
the um the situation in India, it's probably it sounds like you um you handled it in a really sort of um played it down in a humorous way and it's probably that was probably a good way to play it at the time. Um and yeah. and so I mean I think I probably um in terms of, you know, what was a challenging situation, you you've told us about several already. Um what what advice would you give to your younger self? you know I keep I have been asked this before and I I don't really know I mean probably something I wish that I'd excuse me probably something I wish that I'd looked into further was just what kind of jobs were out there um yeah I feel like in the first few years of uh, especially come, going into university, I just sort of floated along and wasn't very intentional. Mm. Part of that was a lack of kind of confidence, and part of that was that we didn't really have the internet back then. I mean, we kind of did, but it wasn't like now where you could, you know, yes. like type in what you're into and then find, you know, anything mm. like that. It was you just kind of did what you knew. That's a really, um, yeah, that's a really good point because now everyone knows pretty much everything to expect on the course, everything they'll get out of it. There's a, you know, right? Mm. Yeah, good point. There's sort of a much more, well, I mean, I'm sure there's still 18-year-olds going through uni not knowing what they're up to because <laughs> part of it is just that that's quite young to know who you are and what you want. But, mm. um, yeah, I, yeah, I sort of wish that I was a bit more intentional at, at that stage. Mm. Um, but it's all part of it, I suppose. It's all just part of growing up. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think, what are you most passionate about? Your Would that be your purpose of what you're doing now? I suppose I would say generally um, I'm really passionate about just reducing inequality and, and social justice, yeah, yeah, so however that sort of looks, and that's been really present throughout mm. uh, all of the work that I've done. I mean, I do see that, I do think that everyone has sort of innate talents that they um, can use to make the world better, mm. uh, and my particular one at the earlier stages of my career were um, a real methodical kind of uh, mind uh, paired with, <clears throat> you know, social skills that meant I could kind of go into programs and um, quickly get people to talk to me about what was really going on, not just what they were supposed to be doing. Yes. And then, um, and then design something that was that was a bit systematic. Um, yeah, but and even though that's kind of some people saw that as a more bureaucratic kind of tick mm. box kind of thing for me. I was still working towards making programs stronger that were then in turn, mm. yeah, um, working towards towards social justice, yeah. And do you see or observe um, with amongst you know friends or uh, colleagues or the uh, just general uh, the general community um, that there are chances or opportunities that women are not stepping up to and and taking for themselves? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, 
and bullishness rather than cooperation. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so I think that there's even, yeah, so even if there's uh, certain things that are on the surface available to both men and women, mm. sometimes uh, it's about the, the whole, like dismantling the whole structure and starting again. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Flexible working and the flexibility to, to work different hours and times and from home is, is yeah, I think that's that will grow and grow in popularity, I feel. I so. Yes, me too. Um, do you have any other new projects or innovations coming out this year? Yeah, well, we're looking really to see what is next for Pomegranate Kitchen. So at the moment we do group catering and that's sort of ticking along, but we'd love to think about what our other offering might be. Mm. Um, so we're really at a fact-finding stage at the moment, um, you know, about to do some market research on whether it's a shelf product or um, cooking classes mm. or something like that to really just diversify what we offer. Uh, so that will be that'll be underway by the end of the year. Mm, so watch the, the space. That's great. Sheroes and heroes, do you have role models or inspirational figures that you draw energy or ideas from? Hmm. I mean, I've been so lucky to be surrounded by powerful women my entire life. My obviously, um, a lot of people start with this, but yes. yeah, my my mum is a very kind of. Uh, practical um, and well-educated woman. Mm, mm. She's not someone that would probably, oh, probably now she'd call herself a feminist, but when I was growing up, that wasn't really a word that was used, but yes. she was always just really certain that uh, education was really important mm. and that women could just do anything. Um, my business partner, who's my mum's partner, uh, has been a really uh, such a guiding force throughout this this whole process. Yes. Um, Definitely Beyonce. I don't know if yes. anyone else gets just like how it feels more powerful just by looking at her, but I definitely <laughs> Yeah, who runs the world, girls? Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Cinder Ardern, did you see those pictures of yes. her, you know, Harper wearing the Korowai, yeah. like a, meeting the Queen? It was just like, yes, was... this is a different world that we're in now. Yeah, beautiful. And I know that seems really, you know, cliched to think that just because we have a Mm. You know, a white middle class lady is, is the you know, the head of our country. That means that you know that doesn't always mean that there's opportunities available for all women. Um, but it's, it certainly does feel, yeah, it feels exciting. It feels like the tide's turning. 
I agree. It feels exciting. And I read a statistic that out of 200 countries, only 11 are led by women. So um, a lot of work to go there. But yes, Jacinda looked gorgeous and radiated a really lovely energy in that photo. Well, it was about, you know, I saw this uh, tweet by Jess Benson and sure the um, science um, researcher, and she was saying that the reason it feels, it feels so, you know, inspiring is that it's about dismantling what power looks like yes. as well, you yes. know. So it's like, yes, you look gorgeous, but it's also like, if that can be in the halls of power, then who else can be? And I think that was mm. the really, you know, exciting thing about it. That yeah. feels like yeah, it just kind of undid everything, and then we can build it again from the beginning. Because <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a quite uh, quite utopian. Yeah. <laughs> I I did when I said she looked gorgeous. I did mean and powerful and commanding mm. and all those things. Oh, sure, sure. Too. No, it wasn't a criticism. Oh, <laughs> yeah. no, no, totally. But I think it's interesting the, the how we weight what words and what we mean because um, yeah, I think I agree with everything you've just said as well. So. Great. Um, I suppose I, I, this is one of the, the last questions I generally ask everyone, and that's as we reflect on 125 years of suffrage and the anniversary of that here in New Zealand, what are your thoughts on the current status quo um, here in New Zealand and around the world for the opportunities for girls and women? We have some fantastic role models around us and we've made some great strides in women's representation uh, in politics and in the workforce although some structural inequalities still need to be dismantled for true representation for Māori and Pacific women. Um, So yeah, I think I'd I'd like to see us continue the conversation about that right to feel safe in public spaces and in the the workplace, you know, and not have that dismissed as it sometimes has been. Um, I would like to see equal pay and really, as we were talking about before, rethinking of work, that means that women are not penalised in their careers for continuing the human race. Um, so, you know, feeling hopeful and optimistic, but uh, but also that there's work to be done. Mm. Great. Well, hey, it's been lovely talking, Rebecca. Thank you for, the, yeah, for you that too. today.